In this episode of Lessons Learned, we continue reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, written by Rebecca Skloot. 1966 to 1973. The most critical time on this earth is now. When Deborah was a junior in high school, at the age of 16, she got pregnant with her first child. Bobette cried when she found out. Deborah stopped going to school and Bobette said, Don't get too comfortable because you're going to graduate. Deborah yelled right back, saying she couldn't go to school all big and pregnant. That don't matter, Bobette said. You're going to that special girls' school where all the pregnant girls have big bellies just like you. Deborah refused, but Bobette filled out the application for her and dragged her there for the first day of class. On November 10, 1966, Deborah gave birth to Alfred Jr., who she named after his father, Alfred Cheetah Carter, the boy Galen had once been jealous of. Each morning, Bobette made Deborah's lunch, got her to school, then took care of Alfred all day and most of the night so Deborah could go to class and study. When Deborah graduated, Bobette made her get her first job, whether Deborah liked it or not. Bobette was going to help her in that baby. Deborah's older brothers were doing fine on their own. Lawrence went into business for himself, opening a convenience store in the basement of an old townhouse. Sonny had graduated from high school, joined the Air Force, and grown into a handsome ladies' man. He did some running around, but pretty much stayed out of trouble. Their younger brother, Joe, was another story. Authority didn't agree with Joe. He argued with teachers and brawled with other students. He dropped out of school in the seventh grade and ended up being in court for assault by striking right after his 17th birthday. He joined the military at 18, but his anger and attitude got him in even more trouble there. He fought his superiors and other soldiers. Sometimes he ended up in the hospital, but more often than not, his fighting landed him in solitary confinement, a dark hole with dirt walls ominously similar to the basement where Ethel once had locked him as a child. He preferred being in the hole because it meant no one would bother him. As soon as they let him out, he'd fight another soldier or get belligerent with an officer, and they'd throw him back in. He spent nine months in the service, most of it sitting in the hole, growing angrier and angrier. After multiple psychiatric evaluations and treatments, Joe was discharged for an inability to adjust emotionally to military life. His family had hoped military would help control his rage and teach him some discipline and respect for authority. Instead, he came out of the military angrier than ever. A week or so after Joe got home from the military, a tall, skinny neighborhood kid named Ivy walked up to him with a knife and asked him if he wanted to start something. Most people wouldn't have done that. At 19, Joe was at least four inches shorter than Ivy and only 155 pounds. But people in the neighborhood called him Crazy Joe because he seemed to enjoy violence. Ivy didn't care. He'd been drinking heavily and shooting heroin for years, and he was covered in scars from fighting. He told Joe he was going to kill him. Joe ignored Ivy the first time. Then about three months later, on September 12, 1970, Joe was walking down an East Baltimore street with his friend June. It was Saturday night. They'd been drinking. They'd started talking up a group of young girls when three other men walked up the street toward them. One of them was Eldridge 
Lee, Ivy. When Ivy saw Joe and June talking to the girls, he yelled, saying one of them was his cousin and they'd better stop messing with her. I'm tired of your junk, June yelled back. The two started arguing, and when Ivy threatened to punch June in the face, Joe jumped between them, calmly telling Ivy he would do no such thing. Ivy grabbed Joe by the neck, choking him while his two friends tried to pull him off. Joe kicked and yelled, I'm going to kill your mother fucking ass. But Ivy beat him bloody while June watched terrified. That night, Joe knocked on Deborah's door. He stared ahead, covered in blood, eyes burning with hate, as she cleaned his face and put him on her couch to sober up with some ice packs. He glared at the wall all night, looking scarier and angrier than Deborah had ever seen a person look. The next morning, Joe went into Deborah's kitchen and took her good carving knife with the black wooden handle. Two days later, on September 15, 1970, Joe went to work at his job driving for a local trucking company. By five o'clock, he and a co-worker had shared a fifth of old granddad whiskey and another pint. It was still daylight when Joe got off work and walked to the corner of Landville and Montford Avenues in East Baltimore, where Ivy stood on the front stoop of his house talking to some friends. Joe crossed the street and said, Hi, Ivy, then stabbed him in the chest with Deborah's knife. The blade went straight through Ivy's heart. He staggered down the street and into a neighbor's house with Joe close behind, then collapsed face down into a pool of his own blood yelling, Oh, I'm dying! Call an ambulance! But it was too late. When a fireman arrived a few minutes later, Ivy was dead. Joe walked away from the murder scene, dropped the knife in a nearby alley, and headed to a payphone to call his father. But the police had beaten him to it. They told Day his son had killed a boy. Sonny and Lawrence told their father to get Joe to Clover, back to the tobacco farms where he could hide from the law and be safe. Deborah said they were crazy. He got to turn himself in, she told them. The police got a warrant out saying he wanted dead or alive. But the the men didn't listen. Day gave Joe $20 and put him on a trailway bus to Clover. In Laxtown, Joe drank all day picked fights with his cousins, and threatened to kill several of them, including Cootie. By the end of Joe's first week, Cootie called Day, saying somebody had better come get Joe before he killed someone else or got himself shot. Sonny borrowed Day's car, picked Joe up in Clover, and took him to D.C. to stay with a friend. But Joe couldn't get along there either. The next morning, he called Sonny and said, Come pick me up. I want to turn myself in. On the morning of September 29, 1970, Joe walked into the Baltimore police headquarters and calmly said, I'm Joe Lax. I'm wanted because I killed Ivy. Then he filled out this form. Is the defendant employed? No. Cash on hand or in banks? Zero. Name of parents? David Lax. Have they been to see you? No. Do you have any friends or members of the family that can get you attorney? No. Can't afford one. After that, Joe waited. He knew he was going to plead guilty. He just wanted to get on with it. After five months awaiting trial in a cell, Joe wrote this letter to the criminal court judge. Dear Sir or Your Honor, In the most critical time on this earth is now. On the atmosphere today of my mistake, no, I'll say wrong, comprehension of corruption that I've placed on myself. A very misled problem that was not meant to be. 
feel self-frustration in making me obnoxious within me, asking for a speedy trial to let me know what lays ahead in future. I feel as though I sure be castigate or chastised for the wrong I've done. So I'm ready to get over now with it. Joe Lax, speedy trial. Thank you, your honor. Finally, on April 6, 1971, seven months after Ivy's death, Joe stood in a courtroom and pled guilty to murder in the second degree with Sonny watching nearby. The judge warned Joe repeatedly that a guilty plea meant waiving his right to a trial, his right to testify, and his right to appeal her ruling. As the judge spoke, he said, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. He told her that alcohol had made him do it and that he hadn't meant to kill Ivy. I tried to hit on top of his shoulder, and he panicked and turned and caught it in the chest, Joe said. I was trying to wound him so I wouldn't let him hurt me. He told me he was going to kill me that Saturday night, and him got me that night me and him got into an argument. I just hope you see I was trying to protect my life. I was not really wanting any trouble out of no one at all. But Ivy's 14-year-old neighbor who'd seen the whole thing said Joe right, walked right up, stabbed Ivy in the chest, and then tried to stab him again in the back as he staggered away. When Joe stepped from the stand, his court-appointed lawyer approached the judge to make this final point. The only thing I would add, Your Honor, is that I talked to his brother about the young man, and the problem that he also had in the Army is a problem that possibly got him into the situation he is in court for today. For some reason, somewhere in his life, he has gotten an inferiority complex, and it seems to be a sizable one. It seems that whenever he is confronted by any individual, he sort of takes it rather aggressively, more so than the average individual. For the record, he had some psychiatric help in the service, but he has never been in any hospital. Without knowing anything about Joel's life or abuse, he experienced as a child. His lawyer said he feeds it more necessary. He feels it more necessary to protect himself than the average individual. And possibly this sets him off where it would not set off the average person. Do people call you crazy, Joe? The judge asked. There was a few friends that called me that, Joe said. Do you know why they call you that? No, ma'am, he said. The judge accepted Joe's guilty plea, but asked to see medical and psychiatric reports before defending his, deciding his sentence. Those records are sealed, but whatever they contained led her to give him a sentence of only 15 years out of a possible 30. The state sent Joe to Maryland Correctional Institution in Hagerstown, a medium security prison about 75 miles west of Baltimore. In the beginning, Joe spent, much, spent his time in prison much as he'd spent it in the military, in the hole for insubordination and fighting. But eventually, he stopped fighting and focused his energy inward. Joe found Islam and began spending all of his time studying the Quran in his cell. He changed his name to Zachariah Barry Abdul Rahman. Meanwhile, on the outside, things were looking pretty good for the other Lax brothers. Sonny had been honorably discharged from the Air Force. Lawrence had a good job working for the railroad, but things weren't so good for Deborah. By the time Zachariah ended up in prison, Deborah had married Cheetah in a blue chiffon dress in Bobette and Lawrence's living room. She was 18. When Deborah and Cheetah first met, he threw a bowling ball at her on the sidewalk in front of her house. She thought he was playing, but things only got worse after they got married. Soon after their second child, Latanya, was born. Cheetah fell into drugs and started beating Deborah 
when he was high. Then he started running the streets, disappearing with other women for nights on end, and coming back only to sell drugs out of the house while Deborah's children sat and watched. One day, as Deborah stood at the sink doing dishes, her, her, her hands covered in soap bubbles, Cheetah ran into the kitchen yelling something about her sleeping around on him, and then he smacked her. Don't do that again, Deborah said, standing stone still, her hands still in the dishwater. Cheetah grabbed a plate from the drying rack and broke it across the side of her face. Don't you put your hand on me no more, Deborah screamed, her hand shooting out of the dishwater, gripping a serrated steak knife. Cheetah raised his arm to hit her again, but he was clumsy from the drugs and booze. Deborah blocked him away with an empty hand and pinned him against the wall. She stuck the tip of the knife into his chest just deep enough to break the skin and then dragged it down past his navel as Cheetah screamed, calling her crazy. He left her alone for two days after that, but eventually came home drunk and high and started beating her again. As Cheetah kicked her one night in the living room, Deborah yelled, Why you always have to be arguing and fussing with me? When he didn't answer, Deborah decided right then she wanted him dead. He turned around. He turned and staggered toward the stairs of the apartment, still yelling, and Deborah pushed him as hard as she could. He tumbled to the bottom, where he lay bleeding. Deborah stared at him from the top of the stairs, feeling nothing, no fear, no emotion. When he moved, she walked down the steps, dragged him through their basement, onto the sidewalk outside. It was the middle of winter and snowing. Deborah dropped him on the ground in front of the house without a coat, slammed the door, and went upstairs to sleep. The next morning, she woke up hoping he'd frozen to death, but instead, he was sitting on their front stoop, bruised and cold. I feel like some guys jumped me and beat me up, he told Deborah. She let him in the house and got him washed and fed, all the while thinking what a damn fool he was. While Cheetah slept it off, Deborah called Bobette, saying, This is it. He gonna die tonight. What are you talking about, Bobette? Bobette asked. I got the monkey wrench, Deborah said. I'm going to splatter his brains all over the wall. I'm sick of it. Don't do it, Del, Bobette said. Look where it got Zachariah. He's in jail. You kill that man. Then what about your children? Now get that monkey wrench out of there. The next day, after Cheetah left for work, a moving van pulled up to the house. Deborah took the children and everything they own, then hid at her father's house until she could find her own apartment. As Deborah worked two jobs and struggled to settle into her new life as a single mother, she had no idea she was about to get the news that would be harder than anything Cheetah had done.